0: Welcome to The Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them.
1: You know, what we do, there are times when it really does make an impact. I mean, I did a lot of LASIK malpractice cases for years, and we changed the standard of care for aftercare and for pre-screening for LASIK.
0: Please rise. Court is now session. All right, well, welcome to The Great Trials Podcast. This is Steve Lowry along with Yvonne Godfrey. Yvonne, how are you doing uh, this fine afternoon?
2: I'm good, Steve. How are you? Good,
0: good. Uh, Had a nice weekend, so uh, ready to uh, have another great interview with a great trial lawyer today.
2: I know. I am really excited. I'm just going to get right into it and introduce our guest. Um, We have Adam Slater today. Adam Slater is a partner at the law firm of Maisie Slater, Katz and Freeman LLC in Roseland, New Jersey. And you can look him up at maisieslater.com. That's M A Z I E S L A T E R.com. Adam, welcome to the show.
1: Well, hi, Vaughn. Thanks a lot for having me, Steve. Thank you very much. We uh, can live great. up to that intro.
0: Yeah, exactly. Well, there's. I mean, she hasn't even talked about all of your accomplishments, which are a lot. Um, but uh, but we're really looking forward to this um, and uh, and talking to your experience with uh, with Cr Bard. <laughs>
2: Yeah, we um I haven't even started bragging about you, but without further ado, I'm gonna do it right now. Um, there is a lot of cool stuff about Adam. I'm gonna I'm gonna say my favorite fact for last. Um, but Adam specializes in complex civil litigation, product liability, malpractice, catastrophic injury, class actions, mass litigation. He's gotten uh, many verdicts and settlements for the big, the big bucks that say, uh, that's the professional term. He's a certified, uh, civil trial attorney by the New Jersey Supreme court. Um, which is pretty cool. I didn't really know that was a thing, but I, but I looked it up in New Jersey and it's, uh, there's not many people, what it's like 2% or less or something who get that, that designation.
1: It's a small number. And what it lets us do is pay referral fees to people who make a phone call. (laughs) Oh,
0: really? Really? Do you have to have that to get referral cases for trials or is that? um,
1: In in New Jersey, if you want to pay a fee to somebody who does no work on a case, you have to be certified because that's supposed to provide some protection to the public that you're going to somebody who's been certified and, you know, baptized by the courts.
2: Okay.
0: Yeah, that, that's interesting. We don't have that in Georgia. I ha- they have that in Florida. I don't know if it's for the same purpose, but I have seen certified trial lawyers down there. But um, yeah. in Georgia, we just let anybody do it. You just walk into the courtroom. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, here the certification is obviously well-deserved, regardless of what it's for. Um, Adam's also numerous times super lawyer, best lawyers in America. Um, one of, I'm going to call it his claim to fame, I don't know if it would be his claim to fame, but Adam's sort of, he's involved in basically, you name it, as far as thinking about mass torts and class actions, and he's been involved, and he's probably been lead counsel, um, he's, been, he's been involved in a lot of the vaginal mesh cases, and we're going to talk about that topic more today, um, he's also been involved in breast implant litigation, federal class actions against Volkswagen and, and Audi for breach of um, warranty. A class action, so I thought this was pretty interesting because this must have been kind of a peek into the other side, maybe a, a federal class action for uh, on behalf of pharmaceutical sales reps. <laughs> oh, I thought that was pretty cool. But anyway, um, he's also one of the first lawyers, I mean, he is a lawyer who has taken some of the first pelvic mesh cases in the country um, to trial. And we're going to talk more about that today. And he's, he's gotten terrific results. But one of the things you've got to be proud of, Adam, and this is the fact I was saving for last, is that in 2015 you you went over to I don't know if you actually physically went to Scotland, but you testified for the Scottish Parliament um, on invitation about the da- dangers of pelvic mesh, and as part of that effort, pelvic mesh has been banned in Scotland.
1: Yeah, that was that was actually it was it was really satisfying. It was definitely a, a cool experience. Um, it was a, a case against j and a pelvic mesh case in the lake of the ozarks in january of 2015 and it's really cold there i just would like to tell anybody if you're thinking about <laughs> visiting there in the in the winter <laughs> dress warmly right the Case tried for three weeks we settled right before closings i came home and i believe it was the next morning at about 5 a.m i went by video conference and I had been contacted months before by some uh, group of women that had hooked up with this newspaper and they were, you know, they were protesting and they were asking the government to do something. And the newspaper started running these spreads every Sunday and they interviewed me and I sent them a bunch of documents so they could really you know, up the, the substantive impact of their stories because it was a real, it's a real issue and it was a real public health crisis, I thought. And I got this invitation to testify in front of this parliamentary subcommittee in Scotland. So I did it. It was about five in the morning. I cannot imagine how tired I was, but I mean, you know, you get pumped to do something like that because it was such a good cause and it's not something we do every day. And uh, it was great. It was, it was great. They asked a lot of really substantive questions and I got to, I got to lay the story out for them. No rules of evidence, just lay it out.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That is, I mean, that's awesome because I, you know, all of our, a lot of our guests on the show, and I'm sure you'll say the same Is you know, to, to, do, to do what we do, you, you are trying to help people. You don't want these products out there hurting people. And so, you know, unfortunately in, in, in our country, a lot of times all we can really do is kind of bring this awareness and this litigation after the fact and try to prevent it from happening again. But how cool that you were, you were part of this effort where they really just got it banned. I think that's awesome.
1: I, I was, you know, I was very gratified to be invited. It meant yeah. a lot to me. Then they banned it, and then other countries did. You know what we do? There are times when it really does make an impact. Yeah. I mean, I did a lot of LASIK malpractice cases for years, and we changed the standard of care for aftercare and for pre-screening for LASIK. I mean, I, there's no doubt. I've had top experts around the country tell me the lawsuits woke everybody up. So. I think it's great. I think, and I think the public's more aware of that too, that we really do protect people. So, you know, it's not, it's not just about what we do for ourselves.
2: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely.
1: absolutely.
2: Um, well, so let me talk about the case that we are here to talk about today, because this, this is a case that, that, um, I think was a big step towards informing the public. And what's interesting is I mentioned, this was a case about vaginal mesh and we've, we've, had another episode of this show where we did a case about vaginal mesh. And so I thought, of course, I was an expert at that point. I, was, I basically knew as much as Adam about <laughs> um, this topic. Right. Yeah. But um, from the materials that Adam sent us and reading about this case, I I still learned a ton of stuff that I did not know as as a lawyer, as a woman. Um, and so let me just give the background on the case, and then Adam's going to have a chance to correct all the stuff I got wrong, and we can really dig into um, the evidence in this case. but. So this is a 2018 trial that, that Adam tried in Bergen County, New Jersey, and the case name is Mary and Thomas McGinnis versus uh, C.R. Bard, um, and we'll probably just be referring to them as Bard, but um, so Mary, when she was about 62 years old, she had a vaginal mesh products implanted in about in March of 2009. She had two products um, implanted, and I'm going to have Adam explain more how they work together because I think I get it, but I'm not sure. Um, but the products were called—they uh, are Bard products. They're called a Volta Solo Mesh, and then an Align To. And I think that the Align To is like the sling, mm-hmm. and then a Volta sort of like <laughs> I'm, I'm doing—I'm making these um, hand gestures that no one can see that's listening, but are, are the, are sort of the arms of, of the, the, the mesh. Oh, we'll talk about that later.
0: It, it's the rebar. It's the rebar. That's what I read. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Steve. I don't know.
0: Okay. okay. I was thinking about it because whenever you you know, talk about, you you know, I mean, I don't want to be, uh, I don't want to be dirty, but when you're talking about a woman's vagina, I mean, the first thing you want to hear about is putting rebar in there, which is, uh, which is the way it was referred to.
2: (laughs) It was very effective and it it came up a lot of times. And and so, uh, we'll talk about that, but thank you. That was a much better way of, of explaining it. Um, and so if you, if you heard our previous episode on vaginal mesh, then, then you know that, um, what can happen to women, especially past childbearing age is that they can have, um, Bladder prolapse, stress incontinence. It's fairly common in women, and there are a number of methods that um, you can use to address this medical issue. Uh, But what happens is your vaginal walls weaken, and so your internal organs are basically pressing down um, on your bladder. And so, Mary had these devices implanted that. I just mentioned, and as you can imagine because it wouldn't be a show if this didn't happen everything went terribly wrong um, we talked about this on our show before but Mary really had horrible complications as a result of this mesh and and we're going to get more into this, but, you know, it's, it's a foreign body that's implanted um, into your tissues. And what happens is the mesh can start to erode through your tissues. Your body's reacting to it like it's a foreign body. You get all this inflammation. The inflammation creates scar tissue. And um, that scar tissue and all that inflammation can cause a ton of problems, which is what happened to Mary. She was well, she had multiple surgeries to try to remove the mesh, and as, as we 've talked about before that 's not easily done, um, especially once you start having all this scar tissue and you start having all this erosion, um, multiple surgeries to try to remove the mesh, multiple surgeries to try to uh, reconstruct the damage that had been done and even after that, um, Mary had permanent permanent horrible complications that we 'll talk about but you know, in addition to just not being able to be sexually intimate with her husband, she was, it was pain, painful for her to sit, painful her, for her to basically do nothing. Um, and, and we'll talk about why that was, but, but one of the things Adam did a terrific job of was really, I think, conveying just how horrible her situation really, really was. So how does this happen? Well, if you listened to our previous episode on on vaginal mesh, then you know a little bit about how it happened, but that was a different product. But um, the scenario might sound familiar because as Adam described, this was was another product where Bard was chasing a market. And so they pushed products out without clinical studies, without testing, uh, and without really informing the doctors who were going to be implanting this stuff about the the risks. And so Mary doesn't know, of course, when she, has, when she has the surgery to have this stuff implanted and she has no idea what it's going to do to her body. But Bard did know, or at least should have known. They had the information to know that the, among other th- things, the poor size of their mesh was going to cause problems in people and that they needed to do a redesign. So they knew, Mary didn't know very common thing in our cases. So fast forward to trial, and then I'll stop talking so much. Um, the uh, They go to trial in 2018. The jury, from what I read, one of the news articles, they, delib- they deliberated for only about maybe three hours um, on the claims of defective design, failure to warn. They came back with $33 million in compensatory damages. That was $23 million to Mary and $10 million to her husband, Thomas, for a loss of consortium, which we've talked about in the show many times. That's That can be tough to to sort of get a good damages award for loss of consortium. So that's terrific. But then on top of that, after a separate punitive damages phase, the jury awarded another $35 million in punitive damages for a total award of $68 million dollars. Great result for what sounds like really terrific clients. Um, There's so much to talk about as far as the evidence in this case and how Adam explained this evidence to the jury. Um, So, but before we get there, I I promised it early on, Adam, now's your chance to fix all the things that I glossed over.
1: (laughs) I thought you did a great job. I thought you did a great job. Um, and that really is a fair, that's a fair summary of the case. Uh, you know, when you were talking about it, I really love Mary and Tom. I mean, I, I consider them to be, you know, Mary sends me cards, she sends me texts, we're in touch. Um, I'm probably not as in touch as, as I'd like to be. But she always says, I know you're busy, kiddo. I mean, she is. <laughs> so, you know, if I'm going to talk about this case, the first thing I have to do is, is pay my respect to them because they're real human beings who are really going through something that's tough. And and I do, I love them. I mean, they are, they made a big impact on me as a person. I I become very close to my clients when we're going to trial. I, you know, we practically live together. They lived in New Jersey for four weeks in a hotel, eight minutes from the courthouse because they're from North Carolina. And, and it's, you know, it's a really, it's, it's a human experience to try a case. And that's, you know, I've been listening to your show. I told you guys before, and the thing that keeps coming back to me is I love to talk about what goes on behind the scenes and how you get into the courtroom and, and what builds to it. And one of the things is, you know, you're, you're spending time just talking in the hallways with them. And, and I always tell my clients that's, you know, we're prepping for trial right now, but they're like, well, I'm just waiting to go to the bathroom. I said, we're, we're talking about something that has to do with the case. This is trial prep. And, and so they were, they really, they taught me, they really helped me a lot and they helped to guide me during the case, just through things they said and, and their tone and, um, so that I, I had to do that. I, I felt like they deserved that because I hope they'll listen to this and feel like they got the respect they deserve. Cause they're two incredible, incredible people. Um, well,
2: and it sounded like they were, um, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to skip far- forward, but it makes sense to talk about it now that they were high school sweethearts it sounded like they were, they were running a daycare together. So they were living together, working together, just a part of each other's lives from, from so early on.
1: Yeah. yeah they, uh, they met in high school. I think she was 15, he was 16. Um, they, when they told me the story about how he, she fell off a couch like the second time they met and he said, don't be he caught her. And she said, thanks, that's all right, I'm gonna marry you. I mean, <laughs> this was real stuff. And by the way, they went to South Park High School up here, oh. apparently, I mean, so yeah. there really is a South Park High School. And they right, went,
0: right, right, just not in Colorado.
1: <laughs> killed the jury, I mean, the jury cracked up when they heard that because it was just like in the serious trial and they hear that, it was, it was really funny. But um, yeah, they were, they were the real deal. I mean, when you think about America, you think about people like them, Mary's childcare, Mary's kids, she takes care of kids. And Tom, um, you know, he basically was retired, but because of all the things that happened to her, he said, you know, we're going to keep this going for these people because we allow these people to go to work by watching their babies. And and he, you know, he works full time now taking care of the kids. Wow.
0: Yeah. I I mean, we We we, we've said it a million times that, you know, a great clients can make for a great case. And it's obvious in this case that they, the jury must've really loved them because the, you know, um, and I'm I'm in, in no way trying to diminish what happened to, to Mary, but she was, I think, 70 years old at the time the trial was and to get a $23 million verdict uh, for what she went through. And like Yvonne said, a $10 million verdict for loss of consortium. I mean, that's, um, I mean, th- those are very, very impressive numbers. And, um, and it's, I think it just speaks not only to the great work you did, Adam, but just uh, how much the jury uh, just had to have really uh, liked and respected your clients.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I like to try to not talk about the trial lawyers being that important to the process. I think, and I, you know, I think that our goal is really to just make sure that we do a good job of being the director And, you know, we're also a lead actor in the play too, but we have to make sure that the story comes across and stay out of the way of something. You know, I don't don't really prep my clients to testify very much. I don't do, you know, run-throughs. I tell them, read your deposition. I make sure that, you know, I say, you're going to sit here and watch the trial for a week or two. If you're not prepped by then before you testify, I can't prep you better than that. And I like to let them, you know, go out there and just tell their story and... Um, you know, I had tears running down my face. And that happens to me a lot of the cases, because I get very close to the people I represent. I mean, because it's authentic and it's real. And, you know, with all the technology that we use in our trials now, I'm still very old fashioned. And I think it's for me, my style, everybody has their own thing. For me, it's being able to connect to the jury, which, you know, I have tremendous respect for people that are willing to do it and willing to sit on these cases. So I I just want to connect and then you know, hand it off to my clients. You know, and let them tell what happened to them when their turn comes. And um, you couldn't find two more expressive and people who could say a lot in a, in a few words too. You know, they weren't up on the stand that long, but it obviously didn't cross.
2: Yeah. Well, and I it's- think you can. You can do that. You can. Or, or, or I should say you're, you're sort of better set up to do that, to sort of not worry about the prep and sort of, you know, trust your clients and get them up there and not have it be rehearsed when you know them, when you know them as people and you've spent that, that quality time with them. Were they, so did they go to trial every day? Were they?
1: Every day. I don't let my clients miss trial. I, I feel like if the jury, if people on the jury are going to give up time, if my client's not there, I assume that at least a few of the jurors are going to shut down on them immediately unless it's a situation where somebody has to not be there. And then I make sure the judge says, look, some of the people won't be here all the time and judges always do that anyway. But I, you know, they were up from North Carolina, they were every day. And you mentioned, you know, what Mary is going through, she has something called pudendal neuralgia. So it's, it's a nerve condition in the pelvis. And it, and one of the things it does, it makes it very hard to sit. So she basically was standing in the back of the courtroom for, you know, four weeks. Uh, Oh wow, sit for a few minutes here or there, but it's just too painful to sit for a long duration of time. She stood when she testified. And you know, the jury saw her the whole time. You know, they would look over and see her in the back of the room and and uh yeah, they were there. They were there absorbing everything. They had a lot of really great insights, you know, little things. You get you learn the best information during a trial from the lawyers that are around you. Yeah.
0: All right, Yvonne, this next company that we're talking about is literally a company that has been with our firm since the beginning. And I don't think we could survive with because every time we go to trial, we always have Bob or Liz or one of the other technicians who is helping us do our trial presentations. And I'm talking, of course, about legal technology services. You can find them at LTSAtlanta.com.
2: Yes, they do all things visual. That's their big tagline. And it's definitely true. They have saved our bacon so many times and can help you out with so many more things uh, that you might even, you know, not even think about. I mean, they can help you with demonstratives for trial. They can help you with video depositions, day in the life videos. Stuff for your website?
0: Settlement videos, witness statements. I mean, literally it is anything technology-based or as Yvonne already said, all things visual. They are huge at helping with the demonstratives that we put in front of the jury. They are friends of the firm and have just done tremendous work for us over the years. So pick up the phone or get on the computer and look up Bob, Melanie, or Liz at LTSAtlanta.com. And you can also call them at 770 770 554 1633. That's legal technology services at ltsatlanta.com.
2: And Steve, don't forget, we have a gift for our listeners.
0: Oh, yeah. I totally told you to remind me, and I totally screwed it up. So, yeah. So, what I forgot to tell our listeners is that, um, if you mention the Great Trials Podcast, when you call in legal technology services or write into them, uh, they will give you 10% off of your first job. So mention the podcast, Great Trials Podcast, and uh, they will give you 10% off of your first job. And again, that is LTSAtlanta.com, legal technology services, uh, give them a try. I would assume that, uh, you know, based on the fact that she had to stand so much and, you know, because of her condition and and even during her trial testimony for at least cross-examination, did the defense do much cross of her or did they basically just take it easy? And by by the way, I should mention the the lawyer who you tried this case against is a Georgia lawyer who I've had cases uh, against before. She's a very good lawyer. Um, and so uh, and she's uh, she's I, I know she's done a lot of the national litigation for BARD.
1: Yeah, very, very, uh, very good, very renowned. It was two very large firms. It was Greenberg Troward and Reed Smith, which I love that. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing more fun than just with my, you know, four or five associates going in there and taking on two big firms. I, you know, I take a lot of pride in outworking the 20 people on the other side that are against me. I love that. Yeah. 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 Um, and there's no secret to that. They, they know that's how I feel too. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, uh, it, you know, it's a um, – it's something that you have to, you have to just kind of trust. You have to trust the people that you're, that you're representing. You have to trust the room. You have to trust the people that are there and, you know, you do the best you can.
2: So did they do, did they do much with, or try to do much with, with Mary or with Tom when they were on the stand? All right,
1: Coming back to your question. (laughs) (laughs) Um, They, they cross examined them. They actually did. And I know there's a few different schools of thought. their strategy on the defense side was to attack everything. Yeah. So they questioned them and they asked them a lot of questions. And I, I think some of them were probably, you know, somewhat effective. And I think there were some that they probably wish they never asked. Um, you know, they challenged Tom on, on certain things that I think they probably, you know, really regretted, you know, in terms of, you know, their, their intimacy is not a part of their life anymore. And I don't know why you would ask questions about, you know, is it really our product that's causing that problem? I mean, when he, and he didn't even realize what they were asking because it was such an inane question. And when he caught on, it was funny. You could see everyone in the room was waiting for him to figure out what they were asking. Oh. And he just, and he just, you know, very, very, very mild mannered guy just looked at, him, looked at the defense and said, no, that's not the issue. You know, and it was very, very to the point. There was no anger. It was just no. Now that's not that's not what's going on here.
0: Yeah, I saw that a big part of their defense in the closing <clears throat> um, was that she had a number of well, at least what they were contending was pre-existing conditions, and they even they, they even talked about um, uh, um, you know some of her physical anatomy as a as a defense on why they weren't being intimate, um, which I thought you know is is pretty risky from a
1: defense side. Well, I started out not trying mass tort cases. I mean, I, I, I consider myself to be a regular lawyer, um, you know, started out slip and falls, car accidents, product cases, you know, the real, what, what I like to always refer back to is the real trial law stuff. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I learned it early on and it never changes and it doesn't matter what type of case it is. There's a defense game plan, which is to blame the plaintiff and attack yeah. the plaintiff and You know, I watched a lot of football yesterday. Some teams have a game plan. They're going to run the ball and they're going to run the ball no matter what. And that's they've done a lot of focus groups and that's their best place to go is to try to deflect all the attention back on the plaintiff. It's it's just how it's done. I, you know, I challenge you to find a plaintiff lawyer who hasn't seen it in almost every trial. So the question is, how do you handle it? How do you deflect it? You have to answer the questions. Yeah. If you don't have an answer for it, smart jurors are going to sit back and say, "You know what? That actually that's taken hold," and they'll start to think about it. So you have to you have to keep dealing with every fallback position the defense has, and you have to be detailed and you can't miss one. Yeah. That's just always been my view on it.
2: Yeah i I was surprised. I think we always expect to see you know blame the plaintiff, and especially in any in a medical malpractice case or medical context case. There's always, seems like always there's going to be some kind of pre-existing condition defense. But I was really surprised reading the transcripts that you sent us, which were open, closing, a few other things, how much time they spent, the defense spent on, on setting forth you know, Mary's medical history and what they contended were, were existing conditions that cause I think we always expect to see it, but I don't, I, it was, it seemed like half or more of their closing argument. I don't know if it really was, maybe it's just cause it was, it was getting tedious, but it really felt like a lot of time. And I, and I, sometimes I wonder how effective that is because you're, they're not even spending that much as much time talking about their own product that was supposedly, Totally safe, but can you talk a little bit about um, you know the various sort of medical what they were contending were pre-existing conditions that to, to sort of argue that she she already had groin pain I, I mean I thought it was kind of uh, it wasn't really working for me but <laughs> I'm biased
1: yeah you know the there was a couple of really there's there was two major I'll call them categories of pre-existing issues. One was the pre-existing issues that were being treated by the surgery to put in the mesh devices, which there's a tremendous number of alternatives to using these mesh devices. The ones that were put into Mary are no longer used. They've been off the market. One of them was off the market in 2012. One was off the market in 2016. Um, So they were attacking her, quote unquote, pre-existing conditions, but they were treated by the surgery. So they're not causing an issue anymore so that's, that was not you know there's not a lot, a lot of room for them to go there. The other area, and I knew this from some reconnaissance I had done this what was coming before we ever went through depositions is they 're going to look at everything in her orthopedic history and try to say anything that 's remotely close to the pelvis is actually the reason for this pain and their game plan and my adversary's game plan, and you know she 's terrific, one of the best trial lawyers you 're going to find on the defense side in the country um, brought in these two high-level orthopedic surgeons from Emory to um, tell the jury, you know, with x-rays and MRIs and all why her hip issues and her back issues was the reason for all her pain. And, uh, you know, I think it's important for me to, to say I'm, I was schooled by somebody who taught me how to deal with all of this. And that was my, my lead expert, Ann Weber. Uh, and was, you know, I, I had a lot of breaks. Luck is you can't substitute anything for luck in this world. And I had some breaks and one of them was meeting her and she has been my key expert in the cases I've worked on. And, and when I, you know, she had already taken very strong views about mesh before I ever spoke to her. So when they attack her and say, you do a lot of work with Adam Slater at trial, I just point out you had published your opinions on this before we ever spoke. So, and, and she's, she's a giant in the industry and she taught me how to deal with this stuff. I mean, she taught me what all the, all this terminology means. She taught me how to pronounce things. She, she's the person who deconstructs these defenses and I just go out and try to again, explain what she explained to me. And then she gets her chance to testify. And, and, you know, when a jury sees her talk in a room, they realize I'm ta- I have somebody in front of me who's a world's authority and, and it comes across.
0: Yeah, you know what uh, struck me about the you know re- watching or or reading um, what they were doing with regard to her pre-existing conditions because you know in their closing argument they spent a lot of time on her pre-existing conditions they spent a lot of time on I guess procedural mistakes by the surgeon who implanted the device but you had. Pretty damning evidence of uh, how dangerous this product was, and and how uh, much you know Bard knew uh, before it was sold about how dangerous it was, and, and we haven't really talked about you know that it's uh, you know made out of the you know an oil byproduct, this resin that's uh, you know the the, the MSDS uh, the 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 uh, um. Uh, uh, safety data sheet says it's not supposed to be put into humans, not supposed to be put in there for long term use. And that's, in fact, what they're doing. Um, so it, w- what really struck me is, you know, after you had sort of gone through, you know, all this sort of history of knowledge of what they knew and didn't do. And then they're spending all their time talking about, well, she was already, you know, really sick, the doctor screwed up here and really just kind of ignoring that issue. It Um, that's what, you know, sort of stood out to me. And I I have to guess it had to stand out to the jury too. I mean, how can you not just stand up and first things first, defend your product, and then you can do the other stuff.
1: You know, I always try to put myself in the other side's shoes the entire time. I try to anticipate and think about what they're going to do. And there's certain rules that we see play out in these cases. Uh, You know, if it's going to be tough to defend the product, they're going to attack the plaintiff. Um, you know, I'm always amazed that some, when these cases go to trial at times, I say always, but there are times when you say, you know, what are they thinking here? But they, they see the case differently. It's a different prism. We, we as trial lawyers, we see it on the plaintiff side, a certain way. And the defense sees things through a corporate prism that I think they're not necessarily seeing the same landscape we're looking at. And they're also focusing it and they're doing focus groups and they're analyzing with all their experts and all their jury geniuses and everybody else about what's going to play the best and you know they commit to that position and you know we in a trial as a plaintiff lawyer I can I can change gears like this I mean I can I can say I don't like the vibe I'm getting here I'm moving to plan B right they have to go through four layers mm-hmm. of approval to do that up to the general counsel of the company probably and it's a completely different mindset so I think they commit to something and they go with it here they, they, they did what I, I expected them to do. I knew they were going to attack Mary with everything they had and they were going to bring in these orthopedists. And, and I have no problem saying it. I, I thought that they were completely full of it. Yeah. They were, they were doing what they had done in another case for the same lawyer. And I, you could read right through the reports. You could compare the reports. It was the same stuff. And I think the jury probably had a very strong negative reaction to that because nobody in that room that saw the evidence objectively could think she was okay. I, I don't want to ramble on with it, but there was one really important witness in the case was her chiropractor. You know, they said, you've been to the chiropractor 830 times over the course of X number of years, whatever the number was. I, I, and she had been going to the chiropractor for 15 years before the trial and for eight or nine years before the mesh was put in her. And we brought her in and brought her in on video. And the chiropractor said, you know, I would fix her. She was a per, you know, I, one of my regular patients, you know, I cracked the neck, I moved the back and then they they come back in three or four weeks and say, make me feel better again. She said, after the mesh went in, this was a completely different person with different problems. And the defense mocked her, basically. They basically took the position. You're going to, the plaintiff's going to rely on a chiropractor, but you know what? This is somebody who knew her. Yeah, and, and she looked very credible. She was not somebody who was calculating. She was very honest. You could see it. Uh, but, you know, I think that sometimes one side or the other wants to believe that they're seeing what they want to see. And I think that we as trial lawyers, when we do that, we lose cases. We, we get hurt badly. So that's right. We have to always accept if there's a problem. I don't think the defense is as good as, at doing that as we may be.
2: Yeah. one of the um, the things I thought that was really effective that you did was in the closing um, you know there w- it was it felt like a long closing reading it as we talked about it was a, it was a lot about putting it on the plaintiff or putting it on other people and especially with respect to this idea that her pain or her difficulty or basically inability to have sex were coming from other things and one of the things that at least reading it seemed really effective to me was that when it was your turn fairly early on you know you basically showed what had happened to her and what had happened to these products inside her body you know the the roping and 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 the mesh i guess getting fused to her pelvic bone and and all these horrible complications and you were like nobody is disputing that this is what happened to these products and that this is what happened to her inside and i think once you hear that you're like it just makes it so much so simple. You're like, Nobody, nobody's saying this didn't happen to her and that this is not what it looks like in there.
1: Yeah, you, uh, sometimes the most obvious things you know, can be the most compelling and we're always looking for what's the hook. But in this case, and I've tried a lot of mesh cases, that's not something that can be defended. These products are terrible. They were horribly conceived and they're very dangerous, and they've, they've so horribly damaged so many women and, and the lives of so many couples and families. It's, it's really devastating. So yeah, there's there really is no way for them to get around it. But what they did, like I think, I think Steve mentioned, they attacked the doctor. You know, don't trust the doctor. Don't trust that it was put in right. Don't trust that this removal surgery was done right. And to me, That all came back to the design defect issues we had in the case where once this goes in the body, there's no exit strategy. There's no way to remove it. Um, There's no way to safely get it out of the body and it's going to create these problems. And you're right, they knew it. They relied on a whole bunch of literature. They said, we didn't have to study this because there were all these studies done. It was ironic because the studies they were relying on were from another company, Johnson & Johnson, had been to the market before them. And they relied on all these studies. And I, when I saw that in the documents, I had spent most of my mesh work on Johnson & Johnson. And Dr. Weber, who I mentioned earlier, was, is probably the most knowledgeable person at this point in the world on the problems with Johnson & Johnson's mesh products. I mean, she's seen more documents. She's read all the studies. Um, so when we saw that, we kind of you know, looked at each other and said, you know, you're know, going to be able to go through this, the, the Ethicon, Johnson & Johnson studies now. That, and, and they're never the defense. They're not going to be ready for this. And again, I don't mind saying this because they can, if we ever, you know, had to do this again, I, I wouldn't, there's nothing they can do about that. That's a fact that's immutable. Those studies were terrible. The people who created the precursor products they were relying on eventually were writing articles saying, you know what? I think we may have to find a new material because this isn't working. Right. So, you know, they were boxed in by the facts. They are what they are.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So so one of the defenses was you know in response to your your I, I don't want to say argument because it was just true that they didn't do any testing um or any clinical studies about the product was that oh yeah we we did have testing to support our product but but it was this other testing done by other people on other products that that they were trying to use and and I also thought um Related to one of the other things that we touched on, which was blaming blaming the doctor, I felt like there was a tension there because they were they were blaming Dr. Barbie for for not doing the procedure right, but then it also one of their defenses for the failure to warn claim was that the patient that Mary had been warned about the about these possible complications um, because because Dr. Barbie told her, you know, so it's almost like, like Dr. Barbie wasn't good enough to do the procedure, but she was good enough to fully warn Mary about the, the complications or potential complications of the procedure.
1: Yeah. I mean, in these cases, the, the doctor who implants the mesh is is often the critical witness in the case on a lot of the issues, because we try these cases under what's called the learned intermediary doctrine, which gives a, basically gives the companies a break they don't have to warn the patient because the way these things are prescribed or ordered is through their doctor so they just have to get adequate warnings to the doctor and then they're off the hook and then it's up to the doctor and the flip side of the coin as the new jersey supreme court has called it is informed consent so that's the doctor then has to get consent and i've tried cases mesh i tried one case in particular and i've had others that i've handled where the doctor was sued as well Um, and then you know that's an interesting dynamic but they, they attacked Dr. Barbie. They took her informed consent claim, uh, or informed consent form, as you said, and said, look, she warned about everything. But so what I did is I took the form and I, I just wrote a list of everything that was on it. And then I went to the list of all of the risks that we were establishing. And I wrote that down next to it for my own sake to make sure that, you know, when I first saw that, I said, I got to look at this. And I realized that, she didn't know all the risks. And what I did was I took the actual documents that I knew that we already had good testimony on from corporate witnesses admitting these risks were known. And I, and I jotted those down. And, and I went to the deposition down in North Carolina. I normally do all my depositions by video conference, but this one, it was important to be in the room. It, it just, it was that important. So I flew down and I was down there with her. And I just handed her the corporate documents and said, you know, did they ever tell you this? Did they ever right. tell you that they knew that they needed a lighter mesh? Did they tell you that they knew that there was roping of the mesh, which is when the mesh gets scarred and becomes, there's tension on it. So it becomes like a pipe. Um, did they tell you about, you know, these different risks scar plating when it becomes like a cement, a cement sidewalk over rebar basically. Um, and I talk about the rebar too. That's, a, I love the rebar analogy. <laughs> yeah. It's a great Probably. story. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, and, you know, and the doctor was looking at this and, you know, she was, you could see in her face. And then I showed her the pictures from Dr. Raz's surgery, Shlomo Raz, who has been considered probably the foremost doctor in the world at removing this stuff. He was at UCLA Medical Center, a remarkable person. And she, Mary at her own cost flew out there multiple times to be operated on by him from North Carolina, which was expensive and very painful and difficult flights. But he was the person in the world she wanted to be treated by. And to her credit, she went and did it and spent the money to do it. And uh you know it's it's uh it's so then they turn they turn on Dr. Barbie, but uh, coming back to her deposition she's she's sitting there and I could see her face. you could see her looking at the pictures of the mesh removals, and she was you know she was there were tears in her eyes, and she testified she was obviously a very compelling witness because she testified that she had been deceived because she was she was deceived, she was used you hit it on the on the, the nail on the head. They criticize her like she's an incompetent, but say, look, she got it right, though. And she gets us off mm-hmm. the hook. <clears throat> right. You right, and they, were,
2: and they recruit her, right? As, as part of the, the marketing or getting their device out there, they recruit her in the first place to use their products.
1: Anybody who does what, what we do, anybody that does pharmaceutical cases will tell you that there's a cultural problem in that industry. And it's, I I mean, I've done cases, all different types of pharmaceutical medical device cases. And when you get the documents, finally, the emails and the internal PowerPoints from the marketing people, it's the same story every time. It's it's really, really very, very upsetting because money runs everything in these companies. Mm -hmm. You find that marketing executives are the ones who are calling all the shots. And they're the ones who quote-unquote target the doctors. They run the professional education. When doctors get brought in to learn things, that's run by the marketing department because they know that they want to get a doctor to quote-unquote adopt the use of a product because then they've got him as a customer. And then they'll go to the, um, the department in the hospital that's buying the devices and say, I want you to buy Bard now. I want to use Bard. I mean, it's all geared towards the bottom line and it's, and it's in every single case. So Dr. Barbie. She was used and all these doctors are used and they don't all realize it. I, I, I've taken a million of these depositions and you see a lot of them have the light bulb go on as the deposition goes, when you show them the emails where the salespeople are talking about them as a target. And some doctors have been very hostile to my questioning and some depositions have seen that. And you can see them look it up and say, wait a second, that wasn't how this was sold. But you know, I hate to say it, doctors are easy to manipulate. These companies yeah. have a lot of resources. They've studied how to do this. They pay a doctor a $5,000 annual consulting fee and invite him or her to some dinners at some conferences and treat them like God. And the doctor, you got that doctor for life. Right. I'm not saying all doctors, but that's what I've seen happen a lot. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a big reason why something like this could go as far as it did.
0: Yeah, or you tell tell them about the product in the morning. Take them golfing in the afternoon. I mean, it's uh, it, it's pretty well known, uh, you know, some of the things that go on in order to get doctors to use their products, and they'll they'll do as much as they can in order to get them to to buy the products. Um, you know, and, and you were talking about how we, when you confronted the the treating doctor with some of the documents. I mean, you know, as you know, we read through the opening, the the, the documents really were just overwhelming on, you know, how dangerous this product was, how much they knew about, you know, first of all, you know, I had I mentioned that it's a, in a, the resin that comes from an oil byproduct where the um, material safety data sheet says don't use for permanent implantation into humans, uh, which I, I mean, that one document alone, uh, you know, for me almost does it. But I mean, then they have, you know, this issue of how they're, uh, they're heavyweight and heavyweight is known to scar more, that they, you know, use smaller holes, you know, or smaller pores, and that the larger pores are the ones that keep the injury from happening. And there's just document after document after document. And, um, you know it's 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 impressive to get the doctors on your side because, as you said they're not always uh that ready to be helpful especially because they've a lot of times been dealing with this company uh who they who they trust but um it it uh the the amount of of evidence that you that is in this case and I think in some of the others too uh as far as what the knowledge of the defendant was uh is just it, you know is is just you know pretty overwhelming um you know and um to see them defend the case in the way that they do and not, you know, kind of come in and say, you know, we're sorry, we rushed this thing to market. We should have, we should have gone slower, which, you know, I think maybe they'll take some verdicts, but they probably would keep their verdicts down if they did something like that. Um,
1: It's a great point. It's a great point. It's, it's, again, it's sort of my analogy to football. If you're going to, some, some teams like to run the ball 40 times a game. Um, But you know, their, their focus groups probably tell them too, that, they probably had a few bad outcomes in some of those focus groups where they admitted fault. and You know, you know, Vaughn, when you're talking about the testing and how they tried to say, well, you know, maybe we didn't do our own studies, but there was all these things out there. There was a funny moment in the trial where they had this expert and I don't remember her name. I, I, it's, it's escaping me, but she was the so-called design process expert. And they brought her in there and they had somebody else on the stand before her. And they wheeled in this library cart of giant binders because they were getting ready for her to come as the next witness. So they had this other corporate witness on and he's testifying. And I saw this thing there and I knew this was going to be the 30,000 pages of, of testing and studies they did. So while I'm crossing the guy, I wandered across the courtroom and nobody knew what I was doing. Um, but I had been through the binders already. And I started to ask them questions about the binders like you know, it does if you have thirty thousand pages, does that mean you studied what it's going to do in the body? I mean, it does. If that study's not there, then then you don't have it. And it was really it was fun because he said no, you, you know that doesn't help at all. So it was great when the, they put their expert in as the next witness, and she was the thirty thousand pages of studies. And obviously, I had already tabbed it up, and I was ready to show her, you know, the 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 testing on the boxes. And the testing on how the plastic sits (laughs) and all that. And that's because that's most of what they did. But so then, you know, the question is, okay, so you've got this giant library cart here. Show me the study. Show me the test that tells what's going to happen in the body with the scarring. Show me the, the you know, it was like three questions or so. And the answer is, well, they don't, we don't, they don't do that. They don't do that. So it's like, well, what's these standards that you're standing here saying, save everybody. They don't, they don't actually do anything to protect anybody it's just check boxes. Right. And that and I think it came across. And again, I, you know, you, you know, you take what they give you. They you got it. You got to answer everything. That's my view. I'm not one of these people who says, don't worry, the jury gets that. That doesn't matter. We'll handle something else. I, I like to answer every single argument. I, I don't want to let anything go, because, again, you don't know what the leaders on that jury are going to latch onto.
0: So Yvonne, one thing I've learned in this business is that you can't go get a great trial verdict to be talked about on the Great Trials podcast unless you get the case in the first place. And that's why we're talking about digitallawmarketing.com. It's Digital Law Marketing. They are a great company that does website design. SEO, social media marketing, content marketing, and everything you need to market your firm online.
2: Yeah. I mean, think about it. The first time that you hear about whether it's a lawyer or a law firm or a business or a doctor, what do people do now? You look them up. You just, you, you Google them. And so your website has to look good. Your content has to be good. And that's what digital law marketing can help you with.
0: Yeah. And they make sure that you can be found, too, because you can have a great looking website, but people type into Google and you don't come up at all. They will help with that as well. And the thing that I really like about digital law marketing is that they don't go out and market for your competitors. So if you get them for your area, they won't go across the street and go advertise for a competitor or law firm.
2: They also have such a fantastic team. They, When I made partner at the firm, they sent me flowers, which was so nice and such a personal touch. Um, they do our firm's website and for better or worse, it's very easy to find me in my headshot that I hate <laughs> right. because they're so good at what they do.
0: Exactly. And, and you know, the thing. Uh, another thing I like about them is they're, they're extremely responsive, as you said, like if you ask them to do something, they will get it done that day and they don't overpromise. They won't tell you things just because they think you want to hear it, which Without mentioning names, I've heard from some other website marketing companies and digital law marketing will not do that.
2: Yes, they're so, awesome.
0: So call uh, Digital Law Marketing. You can call them at 877-916-0644 or you can look them up at digitallawmarketing.com. Again, that's digitallawmarketing.com.
2: And tell them we sent you.
0: And, it, you know, one thing, uh, it, it comes down to this credibility uh, you know, um, contest between you and the other side. And, and one thing I like that you did in your opening is you basically started right from the beginning saying, you know, I want you to, you know, uh, hold me accountable for everything I say and, you know, see whether or not I prove what I say I'm going to prove, but do the same for them. Um, but you know, so when you, when you're, um, you're talking about putting up witnesses against each other and, and um, and, and going through the evidence, I mean, it, it just, really helps you as far as, as being straightforward and, and honest and credible with the, um, with the jury?
1: Hey, look, I don't say anything that I don't absolutely know I can prove. If that means yeah. I'm going to try to prove two things instead of six, I'm going to prove two things instead of six. Right. Um, I, you know, my feeling is when I try these cases, I, when I've done them myself, there's been a few cases where I was asked to do them with some other firms and I went in and we shared the, the work and that was great. It was fun. But you know, when it's my case, I, I do every witness, um, at this level of these cases, it's, um, you know, it, it's just it's what I do. So I'm there talking for my side. Like you just said, the credibility, and, and I like to have that credibility fight. I want to have it. I want to say that up front. And as long as you stick to what you say you're going to do, And as long as you don't say the wrong thing. I mean, my PowerPoints, I have citations across every PowerPoint. I use an opening and closing. Anything that refers to testimony has the pages and lines. And I tell the jury what that is. And I tell them I'm going to try this case off of what they said and what their documents say. And that's what we're going to focus on because and then and of course, they're not going to want to talk about those things. They're going to want to talk about the plaintiff or, you know the day of the week or something else that didn't have anything to do with it. But, and again, these are themes that I think carry over all types of trials. Uh,
2: Well, one of the things, especially if you contrast, you know, your approach with that, um, there was something that was sort of, I was sort of picking up on from the transcripts, but I'm wondering what was really happening, where it sounded like um, in the, close they mentioned that they had more witnesses but they were gonna they had basically cut things short because they could tell that the the jury got it but you had sort of mentioned um, you know that they had I don't know if it was a corporate rep or or just somebody who worked for Bard that they had there that suddenly wasn't there when it when it was time for her to be cross-examined so I'm wondering if you could if you could talk a little bit about what was happening
1: I I will gladly talk about that They, they walked in and from day one said, you know, we're going to answer everything. We're going to have witnesses come in. Uh, you know, Slater's going to put his case on and it's going to go for a while. Just remember, we get to go second. So don't don't close your mind off. And they introduced this person named Laura Bigby, who was sitting in the third row. She's from the company. She was involved in developing this product and she knows everything. And she's going to answer all your questions. So, you know, we put our case on and she's there and, you know, the case is dragging along and dragging along and they start putting their witnesses on and we're getting to the last day or so. And the judge has now given us a hard stop. Like this case is you're going to be done at this time. So I went home, whatever day of the week it was, I think it was Wednesday night, knowing that on Thursday morning, whatever it was Tuesday night, I guess. And then Wednesday, she they were going to put their last witnesses on and we were going to close Thursday. So I, I was so fried by then that I started prepping to cross her. And I said, you know what, I'm just going to pull the, I'm just going to put the pile of documents on my table and whatever she talks about, I'm going to pull the documents out. I jotted a few notes on my post-it note driving to, to court the next morning. They put on, we get in the morning, they bring us into chambers and they said, you know, judge, we've decided we're not calling this biggie. And I was like, okay. Judge said, <laughs> no, I don't care. It's their call. So they didn't call it. And I think, you know, I think they didn't call her because they they didn't want me to cross her because i learned from you know watching a lot of you know trials hanging around and talking to a lot of people when you're doing cross-examination as a plaintiff lawyer you're closing i mean i look at every cross as a mini closing and i was going to get to do this and then they in new jersey the plaintiff goes first in opening plaintiff goes last in closing we don't have rebuttal so i knew that I was going to be this was going to be the last witness so i wanted to close before they heard from her so i was ready to go i mean i knew the documents by heart then in three three and a half weeks into trial we didn't call her now answering your question so in closing my uh adversary and this may be one of the things that happens if you try cases all over the country you may not know all the ins and outs of what happens but she said we didn't call this witness because we wanted to get the case to you earlier and we didn't think you needed it. We just were ready to just give you the case because you're ready. We were doing you a favor. Unfortunately, in New Jersey, we have the adverse inference rule and, and the case called Clowens that says, if you're going to make an adverse inference closing, you have to tell the other side before the evidence is closed and, or give them an option to reopen and put that witness on the stand. If the witness is accessible to them so that they have a chance, I learned that from a, a a judge who was giving me a real hard time in a trial when I was like two or three years into my practice, and uh, and I never forgot it. So I, I you know I looked I looked up and said I can't believe you just said that. So I was like I get to now close on adverse inference for the first time in my life about not calling a witness. And I, if you read it, I I, mean, I guess you did. It was yeah you know the, you don't get those opportunities too much as a trial lawyer, but you, you also you don't want to you don't want to blow it. And I think it went very smoothly because she was back in the room for the closings she was gone the day before oh wow and now she's there and you know i got a chance to you know look at the jury and say you know this comes back to what i was saying before i think that i developed a lot of trust with the jury and i think they knew that i was someone that didn't say things i couldn't prove and they knew there's no, i've no heirs. I'm, I'm who i am um you know and i just said you know they didn't put her they didn't bring her not because they were doing you a favor they didn't put her up there because they saw what happened to every one of their other witnesses when I got to cross-examine them. What they got is you got you got a polished direct and then and then they fell to pieces on cross because that's what happens when you're not telling the truth. I mean, I, I'm paraphrasing basically what I did. That was the message. And, you know, it was, uh, you know, yeah. you got to take it. I'm going to keep with the football analogies because, it's you know, <laughs> the Giants finally are starting to look like a real team. So I'm excited. <laughs> um, but, you know, you got to, you got to, do something with another team's turnovers you have to make points out of them and that i mean that, that was a layup it was it was just but i didn't want to go too overboard um yeah and across it, it was it was it was a a crazy terrible mistake to say that especially against law firms of that size i mean they had at least 15 you know 20 people at the courthouse the whole trial it was it was me and a few associates who were shuttling by the way if they're when they listen to this shuttling to vacations. I had one associate who went to India for a wedding and came back during the trial. Another associate who went somewhere else for a week. And I was like, all right, you're going to take over this person's role. And, and you know, it's just fun. I mean, it's just yeah. You yeah. get a ball, but um, I couldn't believe that. And uh, yeah, yeah. That's well, and I think answer to a fun moment.
2: Yeah. Well, and I think it's um no, I think it's, I, I think that what is, what I, especially reading that, I was like, oh, you know, that had to be good is that we've talked about it many times on the show. The jury doesn't miss anything. And especially the stuff that goes on the courtroom that, the, that is not necessarily what they're supposed to be paying attention to. Like they right. notice who's there and not there and what they're wearing and how they're acting and how they're reacting. So to be able to, to, uh, incorporate into your closing something that happened that they probably picked up on. But, you know, is this sort of behind the scenes thing that's not just straight out in their face? Yeah. I mean, you just know they had to love that.
1: <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. One of the things that I, I always focus on is, you know, the jury is the most important people in the room and any trial lawyer who thinks they're smarter than the jury is a fool because the jury is, I, I think we tried this case to eight people. I mean, they're collectively so much smarter than any of us are. And like you said, Yvonne, they see everything. They see things we don't see. Mm-hmm. They see how we conduct ourselves. So yeah, it was, it, it, there were definitely, there was some reaction from a few of the jurors when I said that because you're 100% right. They knew, they knew yeah. she was gone. They were taking notes. Judges let jurors take notes in these long trials in New Jersey. I'm sure that they had written down her name. I'm sure that when she didn't get called, they were like, Really? Yeah. After all that, she's built up to her for three and a half weeks.
2: Yeah. But I
1: think they made the right call not calling her. I think they just didn't handle it the way they should have and shouldn't have drawn attention to it. I I think it would have been a terrible mistake to put her on the, terrible mistake to put her on the, uh, on the stand, but
2: yeah. Well, and so speaking of that, you mentioned this earlier, and and it sort of seems we we didn't have transcripts of of everything that happened at trial. Um, Thank goodness, because I don't think we would have had time to read them all.
1: But with your life, other than read my (laughs) transcript,
2: yeah, (laughs) Um, that's that's my hobby during uh, uh, social isolation. But um, it's you mentioned this earlier too. It sounds like when we always talk about how how you know you survive your case in chief and and then you win your case in cross or the things that you're able to do in cross but it sounds like in this case in particular and maybe this is this is part of your general strategy in these cases or all cases was that you really proved a lot of your defect claims through cross examination through the defense witnesses versus calling your own witnesses to tell the jury you know what you thought so i'm wondering if if that was something that you know is is a, is an approach you take in all the cases like this, if it's one you take in case, in all cases, or if you could just speak to the strategy of that.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, I In every one of these cases, these, these product cases, especially these medical device cases, I put on a corporate witness adversely to start the trial. And I tell the story through one of their witnesses. And I try to lay out as much as I can. And then I also show a lot of video during my trials, which is something that's I'm not going to call it controversial in the sense that people are against it but there's some people who are you know people want a live witness i personally don't think the jury really cares you know they're not professional jurors they don't know what they're used to seeing so i i show a lot of videos so for example in this case the first witness was a marketing executive and you know we tell the story right out of the box you know the we show the documents about what what they were looking to earn off of these products and And we tell the story, and then the marketing, again, the marketing people know these products cold, so you can walk through what they are and how they work and the whole thing. Um, And then I showed some videos of some other corporate witnesses, like you said, so that by the time I started putting my people on, my witnesses, um, the jury knew the story. And also, I was setting the groundwork. Um, One of the really important witnesses for me in this case, and all my mesh cases, has been my uh, pathology expert. From Boston, who's a just a tremendous guy and the most one of the most down to earth people I've ever met in my life. Considering his credentials, um, you know, as a 40 year Harvard professor, and you know, in these cases, the scarring of the mesh is very important. That's that's the the telltale defect, and there's that's why these these cases, in my mind, are indefensible if you know how to try them. And a lot of the companies, you know, you know, may or may not realize that I'm still banging around with a few of them. Um, so what i do is i established early in the case that the company admitted that's the problem with the product then i bring my pathology expert in who's looked at the slides of her explanted mesh under the microscope and puts up these psychedelic pictures on the wall and explains to the jury that's those are fields of scarring and that's across the mesh that's what you've heard the word scar plate by then i had already pounded that word into the jury so much that they're experts on this already. And now they're they're seeing the smoking gun and they they can cross them all they want, but it is what it is because I already knew their pathology expert had admitted it too. Unfortunately, they hadn't shown her the internal documents saying it's a bad thing, which they never do. They don't show the bad documents to their experts in these Mm -hmm. cases. So, you know, I mean, it's a Hobson's choice. They figure we'll just have them deal with, you know, biased literature and things that are off point and say it's safe. But you know that was fun because I knew their expert was going to come in later, and say, "Yeah, that's what this is." But that's a good thing. But of course, I knew I was going to then show her the documents the jury had taken possession of mentally already and knew cold. And you know, of course, her answer was like, well, you know, "I haven't seen that. You know, I don't know that yeah. that's true." And I was like, "No, you don't because you don't work for Bard. Thank you." Yeah. <laughs> so the story goes. So that's so again, that's like sort of a rambling way of saying yes. I, I tell the story through their witnesses and then. You know, I have tremendous experts in these cases because there's really, really good people who are willing to come, come forward because there's real problems there. And um, it's not hard to find somebody who's really at the top of the field. And then, you know, then they put their experts on. And if you if you're ready and you've prepared yourself, you can keep putting your case on through them, too. Yeah. yeah that's the best yeah. Case, right
0: <laughs> Yeah yeah absolutely in, in New Jersey um, I'm, I'm trying to remember but um, when you put up a corporate rep one of their corporate reps first, do they get to direct in your case in chief or do you just get to cross and then they have to put up their witness in their
1: case? It, it's a great question. It's a great question. With their witness they can then question them after I do but we had a lot of motion practice over this one. They had three people they wanted to call who were corporate witnesses as experts. And I was able to block that based on some, you know, nuances in New Jersey law and not that interesting. But then they said, well, you know, we're flying this guy in from Georgia. So let us just do everything. And I said, no, you'll stick to the scope of my direct. And it was a big fight. And the judge ruled appropriately. Look, you know, you, you to the defense, you're limited to what the plaintiff gets into. So I was very, boxed in and what I did, I told the story I wanted to through him. And I said to them, you know, bring him back if you want. Right. Which is fine. Because I knew they would bring him back. They would take him way out of his wheelhouse as a marketing executive and try to make him an expert on mesh, even though they had been precluded. And then I would be able to, you know, go through all the stuff again. And You know, I I have fun when you know. Obviously, the witnesses are up there. I, you know, they hand me the documents. I sit there. I highlight them. I read them while I'm going. Got nothing else to do. And and I think the jury starts to watch that and they start to see that. I always say, you know, Lord, you got a document for me? You're going to show me what you're showing? Because then I, you know, I mark it up. And I think after you've had some success a few times, I think the jury starts to enjoy the show a little bit to see, oh well, what's going to come up next? (laughs) Yeah. And you know, it's but that's the mistake of putting people up and knowing that they're wide open because the jury I think starts to not listen so much to the direct anymore because they're just waiting for the cross. Right. If it's going well for you, if it's not going well, you know, you've got to come up with plan B. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
0: No, I, I had a, uh, I had a, um, a juror tell me one time, cause, uh, we usually, we, we try, uh, our par- partners try these cases together. And, um, when we try our cases and, uh, and we'll write a lot of notes and hand them to each other, while we're, you know, either they're on direct or, and we're getting ready to cross or even during cross, we'll just hand a note. And so they would always, you know, say, we you know, we were just waiting for you to write a note and hand it, you know, because we were wondering what the next question was going to be. And, uh, and they get to a point where they enjoy watching stuff like that. Cause then they know you've, uh, you've got something on them. <laughs> yeah
2: oh, absolutely. Um, Well, so no. I, I want to talk about punitive damages, but before we do, um, I've, I, we've mentioned the, the, the rebar comparison several times, but we haven't, um, really talked about it that much but obviously with all the stuff that we read you know it, it jumped out to steve and to me so I'm, so if you could talk a little bit about about that and how and you know that where that you know choice of analogy came from and how you kept being able to work that in throughout the trial
1: absolutely that comes from a few places one the marketing documents of the mesh manufacturers where they had PowerPoints internally comparing it to rebar and telling their sales representatives, this is how you want to talk to doctors about this. Because when this stuff first came on the market, the argument was they were doctors have been cutting little pieces of hernia mesh and working them into suture repairs of these prolapse conditions because it would give a little more support on a very serious case. They would say, you know, this will just give a little more support. And the companies decided, well, let's start fa- fa- shaping that ourselves and selling it as, mesh for the pelvic floor, another market. So they sold it saying, we're going to get you a permanent repair here with this. It's going to be like rebar. This stuff's never going to fail like your suture repairs that, that fail. And, and I'll tell you side note. They, they basically created a bunch of literature to say that there was this, these horrible failure rates with sutures. And that was one of the things Dr. Weber taught me and she's great at trial. She goes through the studies and says, actually, the failure rates are actually very manageable. With the, the more advanced studies that have been done over the years. But anyway, so they had these PowerPoints with pictures of rebar. And then in talking to some of my experts, they said, yeah, I use that term. I, it came from them. So at this trial, they moved because they had just watched me try a case against J&J in the same courthouse two months earlier, where I had used the rebar pictures from a and j PowerPoint, and they moved to block me from using the rebar picture in my opening. So the judge ruled I could talk about it, but I couldn't show it. Okay. Um, but it's a great analogy because then the flip side to it is rebar on the sidewalk is great. You got to get it out. You pile, drive the concrete, you rip it out and put it back. But right. my gosh, when you have to remove mesh, that's not a good thing to do. And it was, it was really, um, a crazy thing that happened during the trial. We're sitting there and one of my witnesses is up there on video. It's the, my, my lead liability expert talking about in the course of it, the rebar and everything. They had to stop the video at one point because there was some road work started outside on the street, and you could hear the pile driver right. taking apart the concrete to get to the rebar or whatever. And I was like, well, you know, oh my gosh, I you know, I wish I thought of that. Yeah. <laughs> it's a great exactly. analogy, and it's one that again, there's no argument against.
2: Yeah, especially if it's in their own documents. Well, and it's very, it's very visceral, right? Like whatever whatever, however, why ever they used to choose to choose. Wait, <laughs> did I just have a mini stroke? <laughs> um, what I'm trying to say is... I, <laughs> I think I'm having a stroke. I don't know why they chose to use that word as a comparison. Right. I guess to show the structure or the strength that it provides versus these sutures that supposedly failed or whatever. But I just feel like when you start thinking about it in a woman's vagina, it's just not... A good word to
1: use. Right. <laughs> well, you know what? My question to that is where were the doctors common sense at the time? Because this was done to sell the stuff. And the whole problem with these products was it was sold on the front end. It's going to go in and do this great thing for your patient and you're going to get these great results. And by the way, we also have a department that will teach you how to bill for it. So you can bill for three different operations and we'll teach you the, the coding for, so that you can get reimbursed for three surgeries. And we're going to tell you how to do the mesh so that you can do that. I mean, it's a whole system. Doctors didn't think about it, but yeah, there's no way to get it out. It's, it's a, it's a terrible analogy, but one of the things that I, I try to say during these cases, I try to make the point to the jury is, what's really great about the emails is that they were sent by people who weren't thinking about the trial when they sent them. Yeah. And when you see the witnesses being video, you know, they're videotaped depositions and they're up there being crossed in live in court on their documents, just remember, they wrote those emails just, you know, in real time in the course of a work day. Now they're going to come and they're going to try to disavow what they wrote and explain that it doesn't mean what it says. And that's the rebar thing too. I mean, those PowerPoints were timely. They were to the pre-marketing rollouts. So that's when they were using that. And now they want to say, it's not a fair analogy. Don't let the jury see the picture. Well, you know, this is your marketing document. right? Yeah.
2: <laughs> God. Um, well, I want to make sure we get to punitive damages and, and before we do, I was a little confused reading the transcripts, what the jury and looking at the verdict form, what the jury knows about the potential for awarding punitive damages. Steve shaking his head. They well, not, no, only, I I,
0: only because the case I tried there, I remember that one of the things I didn't like about New Jersey, and I, I love New Jersey, but uh, but in Georgia, at the end of the uh, phase one, the jury has to answer whether or not they have met the conduct to award punitive damages. So they know there's a second phase coming, and then the next phase you're going to talk about how much. In New Jersey, you you get your plaintiffs' verdict. The the jury didn't at least in my experience, didn't, doesn't exactly know there's another phase coming. And then they're told, well, there's going to be one more phase. Um, so that's what I remember about trying to case up in New Jersey and about the punitive damages section is that uh, the jury doesn't get to know uh, ahead of time that there's there could be a second phase.
1: No, the the standard is the defense has the choice. It's defendant's choice. If they want to bifurcate the trial, they have the right to bifurcate the trial, which is how this case was tried. So you try the compensatory phase where you have the liability decided, you have a compensatory damages decided, and that's the end of that phase. And then as it happened in this case, the judge then thanked the jury for the verdict and then said, now I'm bringing you back tomorrow and you're gonna decide punitive damages tomorrow, which is a different issue. It's gonna be much shorter phase. And all we did was I think two 40 minute closings or something, and then they just took the case again. We didn't put on any more evidence. Um, and that was it. Uh, I had tried the case against j and a few months earlier, and they, who had tried a lot more of these cases, actually declined to bifurcate. So we tried punitives as one phase. And, you know, who knows who's right? You know, I guess it's, it's every case is different. I think it always comes down to who are the people on the jury. And, um, but, but that's how it was done. You know, it's always interesting to see the jury. They think they're done, and then they find out they're coming back.
2: That's what's crazy to me about it is that I, we've talked on the show several times about the strategy that the defense takes as, as far as whether they want bifurcation or not and, and what the reasoning could be for doing that. And fine, but the, it's crazy to me that the jury could come back in, you know, from the jury room thinking like long couple weeks, long month, whatever, you know, like we did it. We, we hashed it out back there and, then, and not even know that they're, they're, they're going to have to go back and deliberate some more. It's crazy.
1: It is. And to their credit, the juries that I've had, and we have I think that every one of my uh, mesh cases, there's four verdicts, everyone is resulting in damages, actually. So, and only one was tried as a whole, where, where there's no bifurcation. I haven't seen that from the jurors. I mean, they, they're so serious about this. Yeah. They, the people who agree to be on a long trial, and we have a real, real rigorous process. Long questionnaires, individual voir dire, one juror at a time in chambers with the judge. Mm. The, the, judge the, the judges are really good in New Jersey because they're very specialized because we have so many farmer companies. So they're, they're getting rid of people that don't want to be there and neither side wants those people. The defense doesn't want those people either because they don't know who they're going to take it out on. Um, so, you, you know, you have people that are willing to be there and if you do a good job, I think generally they're, they're like, okay, that's fine, one more day. Yeah,
2: and I guess and now that I say be, it, Yeah, yeah. Yes, now that I think about it, the flip side is that in Georgia, where we've got, you know, sort of our first phase, but at the bottom of the verdict form, they elect whether they want to award punitive damages. And if they elect yes, then they stay. But if they elect no, then they can leave. So right. <laughs> maybe, maybe New Jersey does have it, right? Well,
0: except, you know, in Georgia, you know, you get to, you know, talk to them about it in voir dire and you talk to them about it, and you say, you know, look, there's going to be a second phase. You know, we think we're going to show you evidence that's going to prove this. There's going to be a second phase. It's going to be very short court, um, you know, and we're going to ask you at that point, you know, then to, you know, punish the company for their conduct. Yeah. And we think we'll show that, you know, to you. Yeah.
1: Um, well, I think a jury, when you get to a point, if you're going to get punitive damages in a case, the jury has taken ownership of your case. Yeah. You know, I think that's something that's really important is that's why I think, again, I keep talking about respect for the jury and making sure you, you hand things to them and you respect them in all things. There, If you're going to win a case, if you're going to get a significant verdict. They're, they really do take proprietary interest. They start to actually care. They start to own the evidence. They start to own their own story of what's happened here. And they start to own it together as a group. So, you know, any case that's resulted in peer for me, the jury has been ready to go. I mean, they've, they've wanted to do it. They've been ready to go. I mean, and, and a lot of things happened during this case that I think were moments that the jurors went home and they couldn't talk to their families. Um, but I'm sure when the case was over, they said, you're not going to believe. I mean, we had one witness in this case, just to, I know we didn't get into it. I know you want to do punitive, but one of their experts, um, this guy, his name is uh, Kennelly. His last name is Kennelly. He's a doctor from, I think, South Carolina. He wrote a report based on the wrong IFU, the wrong package insert. Oh, okay. they, had, they, had, they had not figured out. And my, and my expert called me and said, Adam, you're not going to believe this. He's talking about the wrong IFU. He's talking about the one that was put into effect nine months after her implant like 16 risks to it. So I deposed them. I didn't obviously didn't say a word about it. Yeah. I deposed them. I will say this by telephone from vacation in a pair of shorts with no shoes on for pacing around a room for three hours. Didn't ask him about it. And then I, 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 there's no doubt the jury. I mean, I will watch their faces. They loved the expectation when I started to, you know, slowly bring him through his report and everything. And then walked through all the risks and these all needed to be there right yep had to be there right and then handed him the IFU which is the instructions for use the package insert and said let's go through the list and he had to say it's not there 16 times in a row <laughs> and you could see this guy dying and and, I, and it was funny because one of my associates who helped me with it I told him before the cross you are not allowed to laugh you got to hold your shit together yeah and this happens because you're going to want to jump up and you're going to want to crack up because you're going to be so the, the, the tension, but you're going to have to sit there and hold it together, man. And he did. Yeah. And I right during the cross, I looked right back at him to test him. <laughs> the jury, I had my back to the jury and I smiled right at him like this, you know, because, because we knew what was coming. Because once I realized he didn't know, I asked him a few questions to make sure he wasn't ready to fix it. And then, you know, obviously I handed him the right one. You know the IFU that was in, in that he was relying. On. The guy was more relieved that he hadn't made it up, and that he was just wrong.
0: Yeah, right.
1: You could see the guy actually like, okay, I didn't make all these words up. It just yeah. happened to be the wrong IFU from nine months later, where we added all these risks that weren't in there when she got operated on. So I think all that in the, with this jury, and I think with all the cases, you know, with any case, you do you have those moments. It, it it bonds them because I'm sure yeah. afterwards they walked out were cracking up. You yeah. Know? yeah. Wouldn't it be normal to do that, even if they don't talk about the substance? I mean, so I, I think that all goes into, into their willingness to do it. and, and, and
0: One of the things that, uh, that I noticed that the, uh, you know, whether or not this actually happened, but at least your defense counsel mentioned it, was that there was a fist pump after, uh, after the judge told him there was going to be a second phase for punitives. Uh, did you see anything like that?
1: I didn't see it. Um, I, that's probably in the appeal brief. Right, probably. Uh, yeah, it's yeah. probably because this case is on appeal. We're arguing about right. a month, a little over a month from now. Um, I didn't see it. The judge said he saw it, but you know, my answer to that is, so what?
0: Right. Yeah, it, doesn't know, ju- it doesn't mean the doesn't mean anything's wrong with the verdict.
1: The jury, yeah. Yeah. yeah, assuming the right, the judge said to the jury, you know, there's in this next phase, it's going to be punitive damages, and if the guy did a, a fist pump that he was happy he was going to do it, you know, my. What I would say to the defense is, why didn't you call me to try to settle the case that night?
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: It was obvious that the jurors wanted to do the right thing and and that they were invested in the case. And that's what we tell them in the beginning we want them to do. So where's the appeal issue there? I mean, we tell the jurors, we want you to, to make this your case. We want you to care about it. We want you to focus. So they're allowed to have their views.
0: The um, I, I noticed that uh, in, in New Jersey, it's not a unanimous verdict. And I noticed on all of them, there was a, it, it looks like at least one juror that was against you. And I'm wondering, did you talk to the jurors afterwards? Did you find out who that person was and why they yeah. were against you?
1: Well, we found out who the person was because the defense asked to pull the jury in New Jersey. We are not allowed to talk to the juries. OK. Um, afterwards, it's a very serious rule in New Jersey. Um, and it's been really fun trying some of these other cases in Missouri and Philadelphia, uh, in, in, in particular where we, I, I didn't, I'd never done this before the the case ends. And then you have like both sides have everybody on their team run out with pads and grab the jurors and start interviewing them in the hallways. Cause you're never going to get them again. Right. Um, which is wild, but we, they, the defense pulled the jury and it was the same juror who was against us on every single issue. And, um, you know, I wasn't surprised. Um, yeah. I just, I wasn't surprised by, you know, by who it was and you know, not to, not denigrating anything about, you know, but I just from the background and from how the, the body language had been during the case, it didn't it didn't surprise me at all. But, you know, yeah. uh, I, but I'll tell you what, for you guys who are in a state where you can talk to the jurors, oh my gosh, I mean, yeah. why do you ever need to do, I, I stopped doing focus groups after the first time. I said, there's no need to. We've now got you know, a jury that sat through three weeks of trial. I mean, why, why ever spend any more money on that again? It's the best focus group in the world. Oh yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, and some of them, I mean, you know, I'll I'll tell you just from some of our uh, past trials, you know, they, they want to call you up and they want to, you know, give you advice on like, you know, what they, what they think you need to do in your next trial and, you know, how you can be even better. And it's, you know, so some of them can be just a really a gold mine on, um, Oh yeah.
1: I had, I had one juror in, uh, in Missouri after one of the mess trials, when we settled right before closing, um, she told me that they were calling me the Barracuda.
0: <laughs> That's good. <laughs> they
1: and, uh, and, and they said, they actually said that they, you know, they would take a break after direct. And after the first couple of crosses, they were saying, we, you know, what do you think he's got for this one? So, you know, it was, it was going well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I, you know, I did want to talk about um, one issue that that I saw is in your appellate brief. But the the this argument over the five ten k clearance. So I guess the argument is is that in order for them to bring this product to market, they've got to go through this this uh, clearance they get from the FDA. Uh, which to me it sounds like it sounds like kind of what they did in your trial, which is. If, they, if there's a similar product or a similar enough product that's already been approved, they can basically say, well, this product's already been approved. Ours is pretty similar to that. So, you know, approve ours as well. And I guess that's, a, that's an, a, an appellate issue for you in this case. Um, talk, talk about that issue a little bit. And it, and it sounds like that the, most of the courts have been coming back that that's not a relevant consideration because it's not, it's not a safety analysis. It's basically just a, a check mark.
1: Yeah, yeah. There was actually there was a little drama at the start of the trial because they asked the judge to let it in. He ruled against them. They filed a motion for leave to appeal on an emergent basis. Um, In New Jersey, there's no right to appeal before a case is over. So it's all interlocutory. And they filed this emergent appeal. And, you know, that was a big motion because they got to an appellate panel telling them we're about to try this case. We're about to spend God knows what they were going to spend on the defense side to try the case. And the motion was denied. Um, which was obviously you know, very heartening to us for the future in New Jersey. So now, the, so the issue is this, products, medical devices especially, can get to market two ways. Pre-market approval is how drugs get there. They do clinical trials, they study them. Um, and that's supposed to be this rigorous, detailed review. Now, I'm about to file, I actually just filed an appeal brief in another case, opposing an appeal, saying pre-market approval isn't all that great either. And I cited about 20 scholarly articles from the peer-reviewed literature where all the doctors are now saying the studies are a joke that the FDA requires, but at least they require something. 510K, if there's a substantially equivalent device, they check boxes. And the FDA says, oh, this is like that. Okay, you can sell it. This was meant to get life-saving medical devices on the market quickly. It was supposed to be something to fast track. What it did is it let so many of these products you hear about in litigation are 510K products. Right. So this issue has been litigated around the country. Um, the courts of appeals of the Fourth Circuit, the Seventh Circuit, and the Eleventh Circuit have all affirmed mesh decisions, um, including in, coming out of the multi-district litigation. There was about 120,000 cases in the MDL at one point in West Virginia. That judge ruled against allowing it in. And it's a basic, you know, lack of relevance and more important, a 403 for all, you know, issue that there's a lack of, you um, compelling reason to bring it in because if you try the case and you bring it in, now they're going to bring in their expert. And then I'm going to have to cross the expert. There's going to be witnesses. You're going to spend three days at trial because at the end of the day, there's the few courts that have let it in with limiting instructions saying, basically, you heard about this. It's not about safety. You can't rely on it to decide any of the claims. The defendant just wanted you to know it. So basically, the judge was like, why am I going to confuse the jury by throwing this in there if I'm going to have to tell them eventually it wasn't any kind of a substantive review. And um, the Supreme Court of the U.S. actually denied cert on one of those appeals from the Fourth Circuit. So, um, but it's never been decided in New Jersey, the issue. I'll be arguing it late January in the two cases that are being uh, argued together. So, you know, I feel, you know, confident, but in optimistic about it. But, you know, I'm going to be in front of a panel of really good appellate judges. And then, you know, who knows, maybe the case, maybe the issue goes further up to the New Jersey Supreme Court. I don't know. But I feel really good about the law on that. Um, but it, all that did was it shortened the trial. But I, I think it just took some confusion out of the out of the uh, out of the trial because that's all it would be. The jury would say, well, "Why am I hearing about this if it doesn't really prove anything?"
0: Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. You, you know, one other issue I was wondering about. So, you, so your clients were from Raleigh, North Carolina, and they got the implantation was done in Raleigh, North Carolina. The case was tried in Bergen County, New Jersey, because uh, I think Bard is up in New Jersey, right? Um, Was there a choice of law argument about that you should be applying North Carolina law?
1: Yeah, I consented to
0: it. Okay. So you, so you were North Carolina law then, or were you New Jersey law?
1: It was North Carolina law. After, after that, the New Jersey Supreme court issued a decision later that year um, and ruled that in We have in New Jersey what's called MCLs, multi-county litigations, because again, there's so many pharmaceutical companies that large numbers of cases get filed. So just like the multi-district litigation, the MDL process in the federal courts, New Jersey's had a program going back years to consolidate the cases the same way. And the New Jersey Supreme Court ruled at the end of 2018, um, look, from now on, if you do an MCL, Just apply New Jersey law across the board to all substantive issues, all issues, because we don't need our judges becoming experts on all these different laws. Mm -hmm. And that's just a decision the New Jersey Supreme Court made. A few years before that, they had ruled that statute of limitations against New Jersey companies, it's going to be New Jersey statute of limitations rules are going to apply unless there's some exceptional exception to that or exceptional reason not to apply it. So it makes it a lot easier and a lot more predictable. But this was before that. And um, you know it didn't really change much. The law is, is similar across the board. There's a few states where it might have been a little bit different, but ultimately reasonableness. Right. Defendant, <clears throat> but you know it's fun learning the law of another state. You, you get to feel well, in that for a while, and then you you figure it out.
0: And I didn't know I don't know what the or remember what the law is on failure to warn, like. But you know, here in Georgia, we have a continuing duty to warn after the sale. So I I, I saw where the defense kept arguing, you know, the time period you need to focus on here is 2007 to 2009 because that's when it was implanted. You know, in Georgia, we'd be able to say, no, we're going to talk all the way up until you know she she gets Uh, it out. But
1: different issue. Okay. (laughs) Let me tell you what that issue was. Yeah. So the product's off the market and the defense moves, we don't want the jury to know that we don't sell this anymore, because they're gonna assume that we don't sell it anymore because it was dangerous. Why let the jury assume the truth? Um, so they, they prevailed on that motion. So I said, okay, that's fine. And then they start the case and they start talking in the present tense. So I went to sidebar, I, I, it must've been 20 sidebars during the trial and the judge to his credit is one of the most patient people and he just he's i kept saying judge they've opened the door it's time so so early on he said to them look you're going to talk we're going to figure out what you're going to say so they came up with what you just said Steve this construct of during the time when it was put in 2009 to 2000 whatever and and they define this time period you know my view was okay whatever because every time somebody spoke in the present tense, I went to sidebar, the judge looked at the witness and said, you mean at the time period of 2009 to whatever? And, you know, it was just so clunky. I don't think it benefited them. But, you know, it, again, this is a Hobson's choice. Do you tell the jury you've stopped selling the product or do you keep it from them? I guess they really felt strongly about keeping it from them. Yeah. In the J&J trial, I had a few months before where they didn't buy for Kate Punitives. They also didn't ask to keep it from the jury that they stopped selling the product. And I think that those decisions were geared towards trying to soften the blow of the punitives. I think both of those decisions were, we're probably going to lose, we're probably going to get a hit for punitives, and this is our way to try to soften the blow by essentially getting these things out there now so that the jury doesn't think they're a big deal and they don't wonder. And, um, you know, who knows what the right answer is? Maybe I would have gotten instead of 10 million of punitives there, maybe it would have been five, maybe it would have been 20. Nobody ever knows. I roll with it. I, I feel like as right. trial lawyers we control what we can and we just have to be ready to just stay in our wheelhouse and just try, try to win.
0: I mean, yeah, right. No, and absolutely.
1: Especially tried med mal cases, right. You know, like I just want to win. Yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah and you, and you made a really good point right at the beginning, which is, you know, like, you know, as trial lawyers, you know, we can think on our feet, shift our strategy, depending on how the case is going, you know, shift the focus if we see something's working, something's not, but you're right. I mean the, you know, the defense side, you know, all of this has been, written scripted tested uh focused and they 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 have told them how they have to defend it and in, in order for them to change from that is very difficult and so it um so it it can make it uh you know i don't want to say hard from their side to try a case because you know i think it's uh plaintiffs have the bigger burden have the burden so um uh you know but um but yeah it, it is interesting to watch you know how how uh different lawyers and, and different sides can change their strategy based on what's happening in the courtroom.
1: Well, that's why we don't sleep during trials.
0: Right. Exactly.
2: That's I right. Mean, that's, that's right. Like
1: I was talking earlier about, you know, what did I want to talk to you guys about? One of the things I, I thought was important, I, anyone listening to this, I think is going to identify with that. Like, I mean, I don't know about you. I sleep maybe an hour to two hours and that's a good night. Oh yeah. And, and it's fitful.
0: Like I, I never sleep like oh. a good, just like solid. Sleep. It's always like, you know, constant waking, rolling around, thinking, you know, dreaming about trial.
1: Um yeah. It's, oh, that's, that's awful. Keep coming up with things to throw and and to yeah. deflect because nobody wants to lose.
0: Yeah. I, I I I've told this story before, but I you know, my Partner and I tried a case against Ford uh, years ago, and um, I remember we had gotten the verdict. You know, we had won. It, you know, everything went well, and then like it was like two or three days later, and I woke up like in the middle of the night. You know, just like sat up in bed, like you know, I got to do all this stuff for trial, and then had to sit there and think, you know, oh, trial's over. We already won this. You know, I I, I can go back to sleep.
1: <laughs> My partner likes to tell the story where in the first case we ever tried, the first mesh case. This was the first time we did it, so everybody was there. You know, We had never done one of these cases in our firm, so everyone's there, so my partner's there, and he's sitting next to me, and someone's being, I had questioned the witness, and now they're questioning the witness, I guess they were on redirect or something. I hadn't slept in three days. So I turned my back to the jury, I put my feet up on the boxes, I went to sleep. <laughs> and he realized I was sleeping, and he woke me up, and I said, Is, "Am I back up?" And oh he was God. so pissed at me. And I said, "Dude, I had to sleep. I couldn't keep my eyes open anymore. I mean, it was only for like probably like five minutes." Yeah. But you know, so that tells you anything's possible in a courtroom. No, absolutely, oh. absolutely.
2: <laughs> oh man, I don't know if I could do that. I guess when you get that exhausted, you can really sleep anyway.
1: Oh, it was, <laughs> right. Total shutdown. Yeah. yeah. And, and yeah. the defense lawyers could see me. And then, you know, they, they said, I, "You, you didn't. Were your eyes just shut, or you sleeping?" I was like, "You know, it's a fine line." <laughs>
2: <Yeah>. <laughs> right? Exactly. Exactly. What is sleep really when you think about it?
0: Well, <laughs> it, it it reminds me of that scene from uh, I think it's a civil action with Robert Duvall where he's uh, sleeping in the courtroom and you know somebody nudges him and he you know stands up. He's uh, objection, Your Honor. You know,
1: good <laughs> courtroom scenes in that movie. Oh yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> well, uh, well,
0: Adam, this has been really uh, just a great conversation. Uh, fantastic work. I want to remind everybody that we've been talking about the McGinnis versus. Uh, a CR, BARD, Inc. trial that was tried in April of 2018 in Bergen County, New Jersey, uh, regarding uh, the uh, vaginal mesh uh, sold by BARD and resulted in a total verdict of $68 million. Uh, is Adam, is there anything that we haven't talked about the trial that you want to make sure our listeners uh, have heard?
1: Gosh, probably a whole bunch of stuff I'll think of. Maybe right, after right. We cut off, but. I- you know, I, I don't know. I think that, I think that we've covered the guts of it. There's probably, you could talk about any one of your cases for, for days and bore people to death, I suppose. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> means yeah. It, but no, I look, this has been really fun for me because you know what you guys were interested in tells me a lot about, about the case. You know, we have our own view as the, as the, the director, but the audience watches it and takes something complete, completely different potentially. I don't know. It's yeah. Uh, you know, so to me, it's been great. I, uh, I really enjoyed talking about it.
0: Well, great, great. Well, we we've really appreciated, it. And uh, again, I, I mean, not only just great work uh, for, great, for what sound like great clients, but, um, but we wish you the best of luck because we know this case has gone to, uh, to appeal. So, um, oh, you know, I, I do that have one verdict thing up. Yeah, go
1: ahead. I do have one thing I want to say. I, I don't try these cases myself. Right. And I think it's really important to say that my whole team, Cheryl Calderon, Karen Kelson. Michael Ryken, Michael Griffith, Dave Estes, all the people that worked on that trial, um, you know, they, they prop me up and push me in there, but they're doing the really hard work. And, and, uh, and again, Mary and Tom, you know, they're, I love them. They're yeah. the best and, uh, and they deserve justice. And at some point their case will be over. And, uh, but, but they, uh, you know, I really admire them and I really, uh, you know, I'm lucky to have met them.
0: No, and it really is a team effort on on any trial. You know, you you hear a very very few cases where it's where it's just one lawyer. I mean, it 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 really is a team effort, and um, so yeah, well, congratulations to you and your whole team on a, on a. Um, Oh, a great. Thanks result. for giving
1: me the chance to say that. I, I would have felt bad if I yeah. didn't.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I want to remind everybody we've been talking to Adam Slater from uh, Maisie Slater Cats and Freeman uh, up in Roseland, New Jersey. And if you want to look up Adam, you can go to mazieslater.com. That's M-A-Z-I-E-S-L-A-T-E-R.com. Uh, Adam, thank you so much for your time.
2: Yeah, thanks, Adam.
1: Thanks so much, Yvonne. Thanks, Steve. Appreciate it. Ladies and gentlemen of the
0: jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast dot com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology. And, Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've we uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our Great Trials podcast. Podcast.com as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website.
2: Yeah, so check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials Podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at GreatTrialsPodcast.com. Note, if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. <laughs>
0: right, exactly. <laughs> we only need uh, positive commentary. Yeah,
2: we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We,
0: we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again.
2: Thank you for listening.